rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening again, everybody. Some of you maybe were here last week uh, when I gave a talk about a Zen koan. And some of you probably weren't. Uh, so I'm continuing uh, with a second talk on a Zen koan, which uh, a little bit relates to the first one, to the one I did last time. Um, this is uh, the 47th, uh, not the 47th, the 44th case from uh, the Wumenguan, a uh, uh, 13th century uh, collection of 48 Zen cases, Zen koan, uh, collected uh, in China by Master Wumen. The text consists of his selection of 48 uh, seminal Zen stories and his um, prose commentary, brief, very brief prose commentaries, and his poems. He wrote a poem about each of the cases. And so in Zen it's very traditional to quote the story, the commentary, and the poem, and then give your own discussion uh, of it. So uh, Zen teachers often will go through the 48 cases of the Mumen Khan or select some to give uh, talks on in retreats. As you know, the Zen stories are famous for being, um, for, for having a point that's hard to see at first glance. <laughs> and this is, uh, this is on purpose because uh, Usually the things that we can see on first glance are not particularly transformative. It's something that we really have to work at to see uh, and turn ourselves inside in the seeing of it that matter to us most. So uh, the Zen teachers of old were very compassionate in not being too easy on us. But uh, the... uh, usual way of, uh, and I think I said this last time, the usual way of discussing these koan is to say really almost nothing about them <laughs> for fear that you might, you know, give it away. And so usually Zen talks uh, are a series of further koan <laughs> uh, by way of kind of getting you um, energized to really sit with and meditate on the koan uh, in the in the main case. So I've been uh, and and this and this is a good idea actually if you're living in a monastery and in retreats all the time because you get to go to the teacher and present answers to the koan and you get hints and you know it's a pretty dynamic uh, process. Plus you're living a life in which meditation completely pervades. So I was thinking about this and thought, well, the truth is that uh, most Zen students, and especially nowadays that I'm working with Zen students who are, like probably almost all of you, uh, living in the world, families, jobs, cars, you know, McDonald's or whatever you eat, and uh, and uh, and so uh, there must be a, a way of making these cases more relevant to those of us who are committed to our spiritual practice as a thoroughgoing way, and at the same time are not living in monasteries. So I've been experimenting with a way of speaking about these cases that is not the traditional way, and at the same time doesn't make them too simple or too, uh, you know, make them too easy. 
So uh, last week I presented one of this kind of style of talking about a koan, and I want to do the same thing this week. So you can let me know what you think. So this is Mumen Khan, or that's the Japanese reading of the Chinese Wumen Guan, case uh, 44. And the name of the case is Bajau's Staff. And some of you who were here last week will remember that case 43, which is the one I talked about last week, was also about a staff. <laughs> so now you'll be able to, uh, you're going to become an expert, experts on Zen staffs. So here's the case. Bajau said to the assembly, if you have a staff, I will give you a staff. If you do not have a staff, I will take it away. And that's the case. <laughs> Woman's comment on this case. It helps you across the stream when the bridge is out. It guides you back to the village on a moonless night. Call it a staff, and you're shot like an arrow into hell. And Woman's poem. The depths and shallows are all within his grasp, holding up the sky, supporting the earth, everywhere the teachings flourish. So when I contemplated this case 44 of Wuman Guan this time around, because of course I've studied it many times, I found that I was entirely speechless. I sit uh, in meditation breathing with this case and uh, treasuring it, and there's nothing to say. <laughs> Not because I feel stumped by it, uh, but uh, this saying of Bachao seems so irreducibly clear. It doesn't need any explanation, and any explanation seems to reduce it to something less than it is. Nevertheless, <laughs> it's, it's Monday night at Spirit Rock. You all showed up. So the show must go on. <laughs> and, and I will now proceed to, to ruin this con completely. <laughs> Such is life. Okay, so here goes. I'm going to explain this now. If you have a staff, I will give you a staff. Of course. I can give you a staff only when you have one. Because you have one, then I can give you one. If you don't have one, how could I ever possibly give you one? In other words, could I ever give you what you lack? Could I introduce into you somehow something that really isn't there? Of course not. I could give you a thousand staffs, but if you don't already have a staff, none of the staffs that I give you will actually be staffs. Maybe you're looking for something and you think that I or someone else can give it to you, then fine, I give it to you. Now are you satisfied? No, you're not satisfied. My giving you a staff only causes you more anguish when you realize that the staff you have always wanted from me, or whoever it is, which you now have in your hands, 
is useless to you and meaningless. Only when you have the staff already and you know it can I give you a staff. And then, of course, you don't need my staff. <laughs> Therefore, you can accept it and hold it lightly. And it makes sense for you to receive it because you know you already have it. On the other hand, if we sneak around the back of this koan and approach it from the other side, if you think you do not have a staff and you're bemoaning this fact, I suppose that this is a kind of staff in itself. This is not the staff that you actually do have, but don't know you have, and have had all along, thinking you don't have it. This is another kind of a staff. We could call it the staff called lack of staff, <laughs> which of all the staffs there are is the most tremendous and weighty, burdensome staff. So if you do not have a staff, which is to say, if you have this lack staff, then I would be very pleased to take it away from you. And I will have to take it away. Because if I don't take it away, I would be cooperating with you in your big delusion that you don't have a staff. Of course, I can't actually take it away, because only you can do that. But if I say I'm taking it away, maybe you will understand that what I really mean is, please, do yourself a favor. Take that lack staff away by yourself. But I can't exactly come out and say that to you. Because if I do, you will definitely misunderstand me, and you will think that I'm saying that you don't have a staff. Of course you have a staff. You are a living being, so you must have a staff. So, I'm glad I had a chance to clear up all this confusion. <laughs> about having and not having a staff. You see, the koan uh, is quite transparent. Just don't look for anything, because there isn't anything to look for that's not already there where you are. All that you're looking for and all that you're longing for is just precisely that. It's the very looking and the very longing, and there's nothing else. There's nothing wrong with looking and longing. Most of us are doing this all the time. The problem is thinking that there's something to get, something beyond the looking and the longing. Recognize that longing and looking is just longing and looking, and don't go any further than that. Let go of all your struggling and return to the present moment, to your breathing, to your body, to the fact and feeling of your being a living, breathing creature, absolutely unique in the whole cosmos. Let that be the fact, and let that be enough. Refer all your problems, all your longing and looking, back to that. Yes, you may certainly lack many things. You may look to others who seem not to. But it's not true. Actually, we all lack many things. We are all vulnerable and poverty-stricken. And none of us have any choice but to be satisfied with what we do have, 
and are immense beings, Buddhas. All the rest of it, the job, the car, the bank account, the identity, the reputation, icing on the cake, extra. These things are all just tools that have been given to us in order to express what we really are. And everybody has tools. Everybody has tools. Loneliness can be a tool, too. So can grief. Happiness is a tool. So is love. If you have a staff, I will give you a staff. Sometimes we really insist on the validity of our sorrow and our resentment and all the things that have caused it. We are really convinced that the world is a terrible place and that we are truly inadequate individuals. We are absolutely sure that we have been wronged, that we have been misunderstood, that people are always taking advantage of us. We are pathetically disadvantaged. Well, I'm sure it's all true. <laughs> and, and I feel for you, I really do. <laughs> also, I feel for myself and for everyone who's in this same situation. How, how could we not feel for each other? But only up to a point. So I must find a way to let your anguish touch my heart and at the same time to recognize you as a person who is beyond that anguish. Otherwise, what am I doing? I'm just pitying you and I'm selling you and myself at the same time short. I, I have worked a lot over the years with the dying. And many of the people I have visited in hospitals and hospices are truly in bad shape. They're losing their bodies and sometimes their minds. And quite often they are in various states of physical and emotional pain. Of course I'm sympathetic to them. But I can also see that each and every one of them is at the same time beyond all that pain and sorrow. Each and every one is awesome in his or her endurance and courage. Think about it. Think about it. Everyone is born and everyone dies. We do it. Everyone does it. I mean, what a thing. Nobody says, I, I'm not doing this, it's too hard. <laughs> Everybody finds a way to do it, and the way that they do it is always magnificent and awesome. And each and every person that I've had the opportunity to be with at that time in their life has been a teacher for me, and I will never forget the lessons that I have learned even if, as it's so often the case, the person himself or herself is absolutely sure that their life and death has been a total failure. If you don't have a staff, I will take it away. There's a very funny uh, old saying about a staff. If you shake a staff at a dog, the dog will attack the end of the staff. When you wag the staff to the left, you know, the dog goes to the left, you wag it to the right, the dog goes to the right, right, left, right, left, the dog is wearing himself out, you know, running back and forth, trying to get the staff and never getting anywhere. If, however, you shake a staff at a lion, 
this is really true. The lion will not follow the end of the staff. The lion will go right for the hand that is grasping the staff. <laughs> and in this way, uh, very quickly, all matters having to do with the staff are soon settled. <laughs> Bhatjao's saying is a lion that goes to the heart of the matter without getting mixed up in the wagging end of the staff. Now last week, those of you who were here heard me talk about uh, Shushan's staff, which is a short staff like this one. This is a typical staff that Zen teachers carry around. You, you get one when you become a Zen teacher. <laughs> I guess you can go to the Zen store and buy one. <laughs> but this is the staff that we were talking about last week, uh, a, short, a short staff. It's called a kotsu in Japanese. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had this staff for many years since I began teaching Zen. And you carry this staff as a practice. Usually, uh, when I travel around, I don't necessarily bring it with me. It seems a little bit like much, you know, to be having the staff all the time. <laughs> but, it, but in, in the, of course, in the Zen Center, uh, where we have all the uh, trappings and appurtenances of the Zen trade, I would always carry the staff. So for many, many years, and, and I still do now so in some places, oddly, in some of the places I practice I do, in other places I don't. Like I carry it in Canada and Washington State, but usually not in Mexico for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why, but... <laughs> or in Spirit Rock. But I brought it this week because we're talking about a staff, so I should bring my staff. So this is my staff. <laughs> and I've carried around this staff for a long, long time. My teacher actually made this staff for me. Uh, and it's a practice, actually. Just as wearing robes is a practice itself, so is carrying a staff. When you practice carrying the staff for a while, you kind of little by little get to realize that actually you're not carrying the staff and that it isn't yours. The staff is actually carrying you. That becomes clear after a while. And you feel uplifted when you hold it. You feel like Buddha's emissary and then you feel like, wow, you know, I better be serious about my life now that I have this staff. It's true. I'm serious. You do. You feel that way. And when you're carrying the staff, you do your best to stay alert and awake because you have the staff and you have to carry it properly and with some kindness and softness. You realize gradually that you have this staff because someone gave it to you and that you are taking care of it temporarily for probably a brief time and that you will pass it on to someone else very soon and so you better take good care of it one always takes better care of something that you're borrowing you know than something that you think is yours and and you should uh, in your holding it as one w does with uh, wood that you hold in your hands you lend some extra sheen to it, if possible, through the human oil of your palms. And of course, you make your best effort not to get it dirty or break it. So that's Shushan's short staff, the one we talked about last week. Now in this case, Bacha's staff is not that kind of staff. It is a rough, much longer staff, maybe uh, five or six feet uh, in length, 
which is also used by Zen masters only not every day, as this short one is, but it's used in special dramatic ceremonies. It's typically used in processions in ceremonies when you're walking along slowly and ponderously, as one does in ceremonies, trying to keep your mind focused on the deceased person, if it's a funeral ceremony, or on the profundity of the Dharma, if it happens to be a Dharma inquiry ceremony where there's question and answer. The typical Zen ceremony often involves uh, the assembly coming and asking uh, the teacher questions in a formal way. So as you walk holding this staff, you tap it uh, definitely onto the ground or the floor. And this can be a little theatrical. Ceremonies should have a little drama to them, you know. But if you get too theatrical about it, uh, then uh, rapidly you realize what a jerk you're being. And then you sort of back off from that a little bit. And you, and you try to find a place uh, in yourself that's a little bit more sincere than that. At least one hopes that one does. This word is an old-fashioned word, isn't it? Sincerity, almost uh, an obsolete word in the English language in the postmodern period, which is so constantly dunked in irony. But uh, sincerity is, is such a beautiful uh, old-fashioned word, and I think a crucial word in spiritual practice. Maybe, maybe it's the most important word in Zen practice, anyway, sincerity. To be sincere, meaning to be present with the truth of what you are in this moment without adding a single thing that's extra or shaving off anything that ought to be there. And if, as with carrying the staff, you are performing a traditional role, then you perform that role as completely as you possibly can without, we hope, getting too hung up on it or forgetting that it is, in fact, a role for the purpose of benefiting others. Now, these big staffs that I'm talking about are usually very rough and heavy. Typically, someone will go out into the forest and cut, you know, a limb from a tree or or find uh, such a limb lying on the ground and then carve on it a bit, removing the rough spots and the gnarls and making it into a proper staff. But it's usually not, uh, you know, manufactured or highly crafted as the shorter staffs. These short staffs are, can be very, very beautiful and very highly crafted with this sort of little, I don't know if you can see from the back, but as a little curve on the end. I actually was the first of my teacher's disciples to receive this. He got better as, as he went along making them. So my staff is very precious to me, but it's a little funky compared to the really nice ones he makes now. I'm kind of jealous, but what can I do? <laughs> but this big staff of Bachao is, is a heavy and kind of crude looking uh, staff. And it's meant, to, uh, it's meant to represent the hiking staffs of the Zen monks of old, who, as you know, were always on pilgrimage, journeying long through the mountains to seek the truth. And this metaphor of the traveler, the journeyer with the hiking staff, is an essential metaphor in Zen and in all of Buddhism, as you know. The word for monk in Sanskrit uh, suggests one who wanders from place to place, who has no home, always on the move. In Zen, uh, the word uh, for monk in Chinese and Japanese literally translates as clouds and water, meaning someone who is constantly floating around and, and swirling from place to place, nowhere, you know, resting or abiding. And there's a wonderful and soaring freedom in this practice of wandering. It's not too easy, though, because there's something in us all uh, 
that always wants to find a home and resists the road. The staff is very heavy and its sound on the wooden temple floor can be a little ominous, but it is a steady, stable, and calming sound. I hope you all have a chance someday to go to a Zen ceremony and hear the sound of the staff in the procession as the officiating uh, priest enters the room. This morning uh, I was doing practice interviews and someone was telling me that at the center of her sitting practice these days is the presence of her aunt, a person she was always very close to but who had recently died. Day after day in her meditation practice she sits with the feeling of the presence of her aunt and sometimes she feels a lot of sorrow. Sometimes, she said, quite oddly, she feels a sense of joy. She said to me, people are always telling me, these days particularly, how serene and happy I seem to them, much more than ever before. Well, she said, I don't feel that way. I feel a lot of things but not particularly serene and happy. And yet, I suppose, I am happy too. And she had a question for me. She asked me, what is the present? What is the past? What is the future? How is it possible, she said, that I can be so present one moment with the memory of my aunt and in the next moment here in the present moment, just breathing. What a beautiful question to have. Not for her a theoretical speculation about the nature of time, but something really from her life. When you think about it, there's only one moment, really, the present moment. The past exists now in the present moment as memory or conditioning. The future exists now in the present moment as a thought, a plan, a worry, a feeling of potential. Past, present, and future form a conceptual framework convenient for living but their reality is a mystery. What keeps me sincere when I strike that staff on the ground is remembering this. Wuman's comment to the case is really lovely. He says about the staff, it helps you across the stream when the bridge is out it guides you back to the village on a moonless night. I'm sure everyone here can testify personally to the fact that there are moments in life when things are just a mess and there's no hope. When the bridge goes out, we always try to erect a new one. And when the night is moonless, we look for a torch to light our way. But sometimes there's no way to make a new bridge. And sometimes you're just plain stuck in the dark without a light. And that might be so. But still, Master Woman tells us here, this staff which from the beginning you have always had, and which cannot ever be taken away from you, is there to steady you and to guide you, even then. You do exist uniquely, and you always will exist, no matter what happens to you. You can rely on that. 
and take heart in it. Call it a staff, and you're shot like an arrow into hell, Wu Men concludes. Of course, we talked about this last time. Rely on the staff with full courage, but also with humility. Recognize that the staff, if it is a true staff, is unnameable and unknowable. It's not your accomplishment, and it's not your possession, and it's not your identity. It is its truest, most salient aspect, nothing at all. It is the empty nature of all that is. But don't be so foolish as to call it that, thereby making it into something that it's not. Arrow after arrow enters hell. Woman's poem reads, The depths and shallows are all within his grasp, holding up the sky, supporting the earth, everywhere the teachings flourish. I was thinking today about how oddly minimalist meditation practice is. In some traditions, there are definite goals and practices. There are prayers to say, texts to recite, things about our life we want to bring out more, things about our life we would like to get rid of. And I suppose, uh, to some extent, uh, Zen practice, Buddhist practice is like that too. But really it's not. Our practice is really, as I was saying during the meditation period, to sit in the present moment, to be in the present moment with whatever is, whatever's there, to be with it radically and intensely and clearly in the present moment, neither grasping it too hard nor denying it, but letting it be in the faith that the process of doing this, no matter what it may look like to us at the time, is all we will ever need for our ultimate healing. Just to be present with what's there, not needing to do anything at all about it. For the staff, there is no high or low, there is no deep or shallow, There is no good or bad. There is just what is. All of it embraced and accepted. So that's my talk on the 44th case of the woman Guan. And now I would like to uh, say a little bit about something else, uh, if you don't mind. Just a few, I have a few more words for you. Because uh, I found that uh, it would, I found it, you know, rather impossible to say nothing about this um, possible uh, execution happening here in our county, right down the road from us. I didn't think. I, I didn't. On the one hand, I didn't want to, you know. I know you've all been thinking about it and are aware of it, so I didn't want to give my talk about it. But on the other hand, I didn't want to. Part company with you tonight without saying at least a word about it. As I was driving here, I heard on the radio that there has been a stay of execution. Maybe some of you knew that and some of you didn't. The Ninth uh, Circuit Court, which is the court for our area in Nevada and other some other Western states, has made a ruling that the there should be a stay of execution pending the hearing of what seems to be new evidence that casts doubt on the guilt of uh, Kevin Cooper. At the same time, a little to make it nerve-wracking, imagine what Kevin Cooper is feeling. Uh, At the same time, uh, the radio report said that the U.S. Supreme Court was possibly this evening 
considering overturning that ruling so that it is possible that when we leave here, we'll turn on the radio or the television and find out that, in fact, the execution is on. But as of the time that I arrived here, about a few minutes before 7, the execution was off. And there was to have been uh, a rally at San Quentin, which I was planning to go to at the end of this, uh, our meeting tonight, uh, to, to have a vigil uh, for Kevin Cooper's execution, which we hope uh, is not going to happen. I don't know what that means about the rally, whether it means it's canceled or what. It seem, seemingly the rally would be canceled if the execution is canceled. Anyway, I wanted to just say a few things uh, about uh, my own thoughts about this and, and the death penalty in general. I wanted to give a talk that I hoped was to some extent, uplifting to you, because the Dharma is inherently uplifting. And even when we're contemplating suffering and difficult things, whenever we remember the Dharma, it always brings some relief, some feeling of being lifted up, some happiness. Because the Dharma is like this, we don't need to avoid suffering. And as practitioners, we have to be committed to looking suffering in the face. And this means not only our own personal suffering, but the suffering that we see all around us, because we come to realize this is not somebody else's suffering. It is our own, too. So, let's hope that Kevin Cooper will not be executed tonight, or at all. It's possible, I don't know, that Kevin Cooper committed the crimes for which the state proposes to kill him. It's also possible that he didn't commit them. Whether he did or not, we need to reflect on this sad and terrible fact of his life being taken by the state in our name. I can't see how the intentional taking of a human life is justifiable. As you, I'm sure, all know, everywhere in the world, capital punishment is considered barbarous, some relic of a bygone era. And it was that way also here. It was all but completely gone, and it seemed it would never come back. But some years ago, uh, people began to feel that criminals were getting off too easily, and that justice should be more strict. I think, actually, that the proponents of capital punishment make a point that we should pay attention to. That point is that we are all responsible for our own actions. Even if bad social conditions have made our lives difficult, even if we have suffered a lot and we're ignorant, still, in the end, it's us who have to accept responsibility for what we've done. Because only when we do that can we transform. And this was also what the Buddha thought. So we ought to respect and appreciate the proponents of capital punishment for bringing this point so starkly into view. But from a Buddhist perspective, taking a life can't ever be viewed as a good action. If you would make the moral or practical argument, and I think some Buddhist practitioners may do this, and say that killing one to ensure the safety of many is justified, still, this doesn't excuse capital punishment. Because these death sentences are not carried out 
in an ideal world by an ideal state. They're carried out in an imperfect world by a judicial system that in many ways is corrupt. They say uh, that the execution of a prisoner is something very rare. I heard on the radio someone said it's as rare as a lightning strike, which is true, because most people who commit murders, and there's plenty of murders, you know, most people who commit murders do not receive the death penalty. So it, it is rare. But how can you account for the fact that the death penalty lightning bolt unlike the lightning bolt that comes out of the sky, strikes a disproportionate number of people of color. Statistics like this take you out of the realm of theory into actual injustice that is destroying human lives in a very unfair way. Also, we all know for sure this is not a speculation, that our judicial system just plain makes mistakes. The public, us, wants crimes to be solved. And so the police feel pressure to solve crimes, and they get them solved, even if sometimes that means convicting the innocent. The truth is, despite what you see on CSI. It's very, very hard to solve crimes in the real world. It is not that easy. And until society becomes a lot more just than it is, there are going to be a whole lot of crimes, many, many more crimes than we would be able to solve. And we just have to accept this and give up our need for closure. Time and time again, we have seen the insistence, we have seen the, result, the bad results of our insistence on too rigorous crime-busting. The person who serves one year or two years or ten or twenty years in prison for a crime he or she did not commit is unfortunately very commonplace. So naturally, it's obvious that some of the people who are executed are innocent. It's absolutely inevitable, even though we'll never know, because after an execution takes place, the case is closed and nobody can, you know, bring it up again for examination. There is no life that is beyond redemption, because every life has a staff, as we've been discussing. This is absolutely central to the Buddha's message. In other words, no matter how terrible a person's misdeeds, no matter how twisted the person has been by his or her life and deeds, as long as there's life, there is always a chance, however slim it may be, that the person can take responsibility full responsibility for their deeds, and therefore change, which is great news for us, for all of us, isn't it? That change is possible, no matter what has happened in the past. You can really radically change. And this is a truth that we all need to protect. Maybe some of you know the famous case in the Buddha's own time, of a serial killer named Angulimala, who deeply suffered, repented for his actions, and became an arhat, an enlightened one. So when the state kills a person, it also kills hope for all of us. The state is telling us there are unredeemable lives. If there are unredeemable lives, then our lives also are unredeemable. And that's why 
any execution leaves a sick feeling in your heart. And we should not ignore uh, that sick feeling. We should not look the other way. We should feel it and understand its, its real source. So I have been you know, very upset about this business. Uh, it's been, particularly now with all these uh, seemingly real possibilities of the innocence of Kevin Cooper, I'm glad that there is a state of execution, and I hope that uh, it hasn't been reversed. Suppose we uh, take just 10 minutes if anybody would like to make a comment or ask a question. It doesn't have to be uh, about what I just said, or it could be about the talk, or anything about practice. Let's see if there are a few comments or questions. Yes? Um, how did your teacher give you a staff if you didn't already have one? <laughs> Who said I didn't already have one? Are there any other? <laughs> yes. That's the Larkspur landing? Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you hear what he said? It makes sense that, that uh, some people will be there regardless of whether the execution is on. It makes sense that, that they wouldn't, uh, because it would be impossible to stop it on a dime so that, anyway, people will be there. So if you, if you are inclined to go and... It's just, I've been to San Quentin and executions, and it's an important thing to do, uh, you know, sometimes, at least once, because uh, you need to feel the immediacy of it, uh, especially it's happening you know, right where we are, in the middle of our, where we live. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, vi the vigil is pretty much after we leave here to go, we'd start. Usually people arrive uh, somewhere between 9 and 10 o'clock, and, and the, there's uh, speeches, and there's always a, a contingent of uh, Buddhist meditators. The BPF always goes, and there's a place where Buddhists are sitting, meditating, and there's usually some Buddhist speakers at the rally, almost always some Buddhist speakers at the rallies. The Buddhist uh, speakers have, have been, um, I think, very helpful because they're usually a little quieter. And sometimes uh, in these kind of rallies, you know, and it's really easy to understand, you know, how the outrage and the anger and the hurt that people feel and sometimes express in the rallies. But uh, for me, uh, this doesn't really help. You know, I mean, I understand it, uh, but uh, I think it's better f for me to to be to be extremely determined and courageous and straightforward, but not you know hopping up and down with rage because I think then uh, we only encourage uh, that which we're trying to work against in ourselves as well as in others. So uh, there's usually a, a strong presence of Buddhists there, and it's usually a very helpful one. Yes? I'm not sure how to ask this, but the folks that would be advocates of capital punishment mm -hmm. would speak to justice. Yes. And, and I wonder, what does Buddhism say about the word justice and how is it implemented, mm -hmm. achieved? Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's a, actually a great, a great question uh, you heard about justice. What, what did the Buddha have to say about justice? You know, as far as I know, the Buddha did not really have uh, a concept of justice as we would understand it in our Western culture. Um, of course, the Buddha extensively spoke about karma, and you could say karma is a kind of justice. But the idea of bringing someone to justice and avenging, uh, that it's justice to avenge uh, a death, the Buddha, I don't think, saw it that way. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think one could make, and this is a very kind of complicated issue, but I think that one could make a case for the fact that this is something lacking in the Buddha's vision. Because we're talking about justice now in terms of, you know, putting someone in jail or killing someone for something that they did. But justice also means raising up the oppressed. We say, it's unjust that some people are so wealthy and other people are poverty-stricken. That's also justice. And I don't think this was something that the Buddha particularly felt. He felt compassion. If someone was downtrodden, he felt compassion for that person. But he didn't have the idea, as far as I understand the Buddha's teaching, that it was unjust. That's actually a particularly Judeo-Christian idea. And it's not a bad one, it seems to me. So I think that, that in Western Buddhism, uh, I think quite spontaneously we are mixing in our passion for social justice, which I think is not so much a part of Buddhism, with our contemplative Buddhist practice, which I think is a really good thing. And in fact, what's happened is this attitude has bounced back to Asia. So now in Asia you find many important Buddhist teachers who also advocate for social justice because they live in the modern world and they're aware of, you know, these ideas. So, so maybe in the end what we need is some sort of a... Because there are obviously many problems with our conceptions of justice, because in the name of justice we do some pretty hideous things. So maybe the combination of both of them will, will bring us more peace and justice together. So uh, that's how I feel. That's my, I've thought about this, and that's what I... I've come up with maybe somebody more learned than I has a better analysis, but that's how I feel. Thank you for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. Yes? If I understood you correctly, and you can't give someone something he or she doesn't already have, how does learning take place? I think that uh, learning that is trying to stuff into somebody that which is not there, is ineffective. You know, if that's the way you're going to teach somebody something, I think the way that you learning is education, right? It means to lead out of somebody that which is already in them. Now, of course, you can tell somebody a new fact that they didn't know before, of course, you know. But if you don't lead uh, something out of a person, then the person is not really being educated. They're being, you know, sort of ministered to somehow, you know. So I think uh, learning takes place when uh, we encounter from the outside that which resonates with something inside of us. Then we are edu literally educated. We are led out. What's inchoate inside of ourselves is led out by the, by the learning experience. So I think it's still, it's still I would still say, this case is operative in that instance as well. Okay, yes? Yeah, I read, uh, I got a book here this last summer uh, written by a guy in San Quentin mm -hmm. who took on Dharma and was transformed by it. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there are more and more prisoners that are, you know, being transformed. Like yeah. People doing the service bringing Dharma into prison. Yeah, it's really common and not only transformed by Dharma, but by other religious traditions as well, yeah. yeah. And I think there was a, a Zen practitioner even executed like a few years ago. Yeah, there was. His people said really helped a lot of other prisoners, you know, 
Yeah. Jay Sarapong, yeah. He had uh, one, maybe some of you know, Ajahn Pasano was his spiritual advisor and, and uh, counseled him through the process of his execution, yeah. I don't know that he was a Zen practitioner, but he was a Thai person and a Thai Buddhist. Yeah. 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 Hmm? Yeah, he wrote a little story about that. Ajahn Pasano did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I read that. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. It's like, how do, where is, there's a quandary in leaders who think they have the staff. <laughs> or actually, yeah. they can't see that they have the staff, and they're leading without the staff. Yes. And where's the quandary in maybe those that that feel they have the staff to have a voice to get to the leader who doesn't realize it? Uh, has did Did you hear all that? <laughs> well. He, I don't know if I can repeat what he said, but he was more or less saying that, using the language of this koan that I presented tonight, that there are leaders who th- uh, think they have a staff, and they're leading, thinking they have a staff. Is that right? And, but, but, uh, yeah, they're actually not seeing that they do have the staff. Not, not seeing the real staff, but leading with some other kind of a staff that they think they have. And how can we, who maybe know we have a staff, find a voice to have a different kind of leadership, uh, if, if that's a fair summary of what you said, yeah. Well, it's not too surprising that in a world like the one we live in, people who don't possess the qualities that we most admire raise to the top. That's not a surprise, right? And part of it, you know, you, you, you have to say, uh, how does that happen? Well, it must be, to a great extent, our own failure as a, as a population of people, as a group of people, uh, that we are maybe too absorbed with ourselves and not really paying attention and not really caring enough. Maybe that's partly what ex- would explain it. We're not uh, clear enough and, and aware enough of the ways that in which we're maybe manipulated or confu- you know, being confused on purpose. So maybe it's up to us to uh, take more interest in the world around us and to be more active in it and not be uh, overcome by it and cowed by it or driven into our corner by it. It's not to say that we don't all need rests and breaks to sustain a life of being a human being. It takes, you know, some breaks and some rests now and then. But uh, we all have to be active in this world, I think, and, 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 um, and sustain that action over a lifetime. The work of making a world that is just and compassionate goes on forever. It doesn't just take one election or 20 years or 50 years. It, it really does literally go on as long as there are human beings. And one has to look at it in that way. So how am I going to continue that work and pass it on to the next generation and the next and the next? I do feel myself passionately that our practice helps. It helps us to sustain uh, that action, and it helps us to be clear about what we're doing and emotionally stable with it. And when we encourage others to practice and practice with others, it helps them too. So I think practice itself, you know, is uh, a form of changing the world, person by person, group by group, you know, country by country, so forth. But we, of course, practice includes how we live in the world. It's not just something we do in our cushions. Practice includes everything. So, 
when, when we see, when we have bad leaders, we say, that's our failure. That's my failure. Someone once said, you know, we get the leaders we deserve. Probably true. So, you know, let's be more worthy and get better leaders. I think that's time, time to go now, so I'll, I'll end. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.